Welcome to the Fort Hill Community Church Sunday morning sermon taught by Pastor Aaron Manning. Well, good morning, everyone. Thank you again for joining us this morning here at Fort Hill Church. Hopefully the snow wasn't too bad for you the past couple of days. I, uh, I was headed out and I decided, you know what, I'm just going to shovel my driveway real quick. It'll take about two minutes. And I shoveled it and it took about two minutes. And then I finally got to my office, and I stepped out of my car, and I was like, oh, something's wrong with my back. Something's wrong with my back. And I straight up pulled my back out after two minutes of shoveling. It was that snow that was so wet, you know, and, and it's a little deceptive, and it's like you got like half a shovel full, but it weighs like 100 pounds, you know, and you're trying to, to get it. So um, my back is kind of tweaky, so if I fall down, I haven't died, it's just my back, okay? So just want to give you a, a little heads up there. Uh, today we are continuing in our sermon series called Carols of the King, where we are working through and taking a deeper dive look at some of the songs we sing every Christmas. And today we're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to work through a song that is a more modern uh, hymn. I guess probably not a hymn, more of a contemporary Christmas song that we sang earlier called How Many Kings? How Many Kings? I don't know if you've ever heard that song before. It's a, it's a number of years old now. Um, but it's a great song because it asks that rhetorical question. How many kings? How many kings? would step down from their thrones, right? How many lords would abandon their homes? And the answer is only one would do that. No king in this world would do that. Only one king would do that. And that king was not from this world. That king came to this world. And that king is Jesus. We're going to work through this song together by keying in on two words. And in this, I want to capture maybe an aspect of the Christmas season that you might not have thought about. And that, those two words are the words unexpected and unlikely. Unexpected and unlikely. The birth of Jesus, if you're really thinking about it, was both unexpected and unlikely in one sense. It was the God of all creation inserting himself into that creation on the outside as we look at it, in the most unlikeliest of ways and the most unexpected of circumstances. At the time that Jesus was born, I don't know if you realize this, God hadn't spoken to his people in hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. In fact, let me just read to you the last word that the people, that the Israelites had from their God. I'm just going to read... These are the last two verses in Malachi, okay? Just get a load of this. This is the last thing God said to Israel. Then he goes silent for centuries. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord. That's John the Baptist. This is the last message they have, verse 6. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. The last word that the Israelites had from God was the word destruction. Utter destruction. A warning that God would strike the, the land with utter destruction. 
And so the Israelites are going hundreds and hundreds of years waiting for a prophet to come, waiting for the promises of the Old Testament to be revealed, waiting for the Savior to come. They hadn't heard a prophet speak in hundreds and hundreds of years. They're waiting for Elijah the prophet, who is John the Baptist, to come. And then, in an instant, in a moment, all of that changes, unexpected, unlikely, but it's happened. The Savior's here. Unexpected to us, unlikely to us, and yet with God, totally, completely certain. And so we're going to dwell on this sort of mystery today. Whenever we think about Christmas, we think about God's love, we think about His grace, we think about His gift. But maybe you haven't realized just how wonderful all of this actually is. And so the first idea we're going to consider today comes from the first line of the song that we sang. I'm going to read that line a little bit, but this is the main idea. What is unexpected to us is certain to God. What is unexpected to us is certain to God. The song that we sang, the first line says this, follow the star to a place unexpected. Would you believe after all we've projected a child in a manger? Here the song, and here the whole song dwells on the story of the wise men. Now the story of the wise men we read in Matthew chapter 2. We don't read it in Luke. In Luke we have the story of the shepherds. In Matthew we have the story of the wise men. I'm going to quickly read just the beginning and the end of the wise men's story. I'm not going to read the whole thing. But this is how it starts in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 2, and then verses 9 and 11. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. So we have these wise men from away, coming all the way from the east, coming to Jerusalem, coming to King Herod, who is the king of the Jews, the not the true king of the Jews, that we know that's Jesus, but he is the, the king at the time. And there's a prophecy that a Savior is going to be born, and they saw the star, the star of the Savior, and they're coming inquiring, asking for where the king is, where this, baby, where this king who was born is. So they have a conversation with Herod. Herod isn't too keen on there being another king, and so he says, go find the king. Then whenever you find him, let me know so I can worship him too. We know that that's not really what Herod wants to do. In fact, what Herod actually does is he kills all the male boys two years and younger. I don't know if you guys knew that, that the story of Jesus' birth is one of infanticide because King Herod is so power hungry that he is afraid that he doesn't want to lose his power. So he has all these little kids killed. We know that Jesus obviously was not killed, that God's providence was there, that they get away from there. But then the wise men do finally uh, get to Bethlehem. This is what it says in verse 9. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and going to the house, they saw the child with Mary and his, his mo Mary's mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, offered Jesus gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. 
gold, frankincense, and myrrh. There are many aspects of this story that are unexpected. And to me, what's most unexpected is just the scene of it all. You have, again, wise men coming from the east, from away, high-ranking officials, magi, people with wisdom that, that have court with kings and leaders, and yet who do these wise men worship? Do they worship the king in Jerusalem? Do they offer gifts to Herod? No, they don't. They don't offer worship and gifts to the king of the Jews at the time, but they bow down to Jesus. Didn't expect that. Didn't expect that. Can you imagine what a curious sight? Can you imagine being Mary and opening the door there and seeing these wise men? We say three wise men, but we really don't know how many wise men there were. We just know there were three gifts. There could have been 12 wise men. There could have been two wise men. We don't really know. But Mary gets a knock at the door, and there she sees wise men and opens that door and talk about unexpected guests. Jesus at the time, we think Jesus is a baby, but he's actually probably around two years old. The wise men come later on. The shepherds were there at the birth of Jesus. The wise men come sometime later. So you have this curious sight of these wise men bowing down to a toddler. And then they be begin lavishing him with gifts. And this is where it gets really strange. They give this toddler gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And me now having kids and reading this, I think, who would ever give a two-year-old gold, frankincense, and myrrh? Right? Doesn't make any sense. How many of us go to a little kid's birthday party and say, happy birthday, kid, and slip the kid at 20? Right? What's the kid going to do with a $20 bill? Eat it? Bury it? He's not going to spend it. He's a two-year-old, right? So what's going on with that? Well, we know that it's not, they're just, they're not giving him exotic spices and ointments and gold so he could spend it. It's symbolic. These were gifts for a king. These were gifts for a ruler. These are, uh, these are kingly gifts. And so they give it more as the symbolism. And yet if I'm Mary, looking at all of this, I'm thinking, man, I did not expect this. Talk about Unexpected. That's the first thing we see. The second unexpected detail about this story is just the place. Again, we're going to juxtapose the beginning of the story and end of the story. The beginning of the story we see King Herod, but the, but the wise men actually worship a baby, King Jesus instead. But also the place. Where would you expect to find a king? Where would you expect to find the king of the Jews? Well, you expect to find the king in Jerusalem. You expect to find the king in the city of the Jews, the home of the temple, the most important city in their country. Just like New York City or Washington, D.C., we think about the most important centers of our country in these areas, so we expect to find the most important people in those areas, but that's not where they found the king. They found the king in Bethlehem. O little town of Bethlehem, but we sing, how still we see thee lie. This town of Bethlehem that Micah prophesied about in Micah chapter 5 verse 2, it says, But you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, the insignificant town of Bethlehem. 
Bethlehem was a small town. There was not a lot going on in Bethlehem. Joseph didn't even live in Bethlehem. Joseph was from Bethlehem, but he no longer lived there. In fact, he didn't even have plans to raise up his kids in his hometown of Bethlehem. He actually lived in Nazareth. And the only reason he traveled to Bethlehem was because he had to. Because Caesar ordered a census, a royal decree. Everyone returned to your hometown so you can be counted. If you're Mary, you've got to think, it would happen now. I am eight months pregnant. I'm about to have a baby. I've got to travel 90 miles from Nazareth in the north to Bethlehem in the south. It'd be roughly going from here to Boston. She had to make that trek on a donkey. It would happen. I've got to leave my home and go to Bethlehem of all places to be counted. Bethlehem hadn't seen a king in its parts since King David so, so many years ago. And even then, King David ruled out of Jerusalem where the temple was built, where he set up for his son to build the temple. Would a king be found in the little town of Bethlehem? It's certainly not something that you would expect. And yet, what is unexpected to us is most certain to God. Let's read again from the prophecy in Micah. You might have noticed there was a bit more um, text that I didn't read. But if you keep reading in Micah chapter 5 verse 2 and verses 4 and 5, you see that though Bethlehem is small, God does have bigger plans. And that's always the case. Let's read again. Micah prophesies, again, this is way before Jesus is born. This is God pointing us to what he's going to do before it actually happens, starting in verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. The least expected of places will be the center of the king. This ruler of Israel who's coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. Continue verse 4. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock. This ruler, this king, will be a shepherd king. He will rule and have the, the power of a king, and yet he will relate to his people as a shepherd relates to his sheep. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. And in that first part of verse 5, and he shall be their peace. The least likely of places, Bethlehem. But from Bethlehem would come a shepherd king, and this is certain. He would be a shepherd king, it says, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Not only... Would a king come in ways and places that are unexpected? But Micah tells us that this has been decided long ago. That this is not something that God just decided on a whim, but it was always going to be this way. Read this in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. Read this with me. This is what it says. But when the fullness of time had come, this is Paul talking to the church in Galatia. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, 
born under the law, and in verse 5, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. I want you to key on that phrase, when the fullness of time had come. Micah said that Jesus was going to come from Bethlehem, that God was going to send a ruler, a shepherd of his people, from the little town of Bethlehem. From the beginning of time, this was always going to be the case, unexpected to us, certain to God. And then we read here, when the fullness of time had come, God actually made it happen. So what does this mean? We serve a God who is so sovereign that he directs the ebbing and flowing of history. That God decided from the beginning of time, before the foundation of the world, that he was going to pick an insignificant place, Bethlehem. He was going to pick a poor family, Mary and Joseph. Joseph, a carpenter. He was going to pick in that town, Bethlehem, a manger, because there's nowhere else for this family to stay. And in that manger, in that one Mary, he was going to bring forth a king. And the world would never expect this, but this is exactly what God did. And he directed all of human history from the beginning of time to 2,000 years ago, whenever Jesus was born, to lead to that day. It was certain. Unexpected to you and me, unexpected to all of us, totally certain to God. It says in Proverbs 16, verse 9, the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. The actions of mankind accomplishing the sovereign will of God. So that 2,000 years ago, Micah's prophesied shepherd king should be born there in a manger. Unexpected to us, entirely certain to a sovereign God. So what does that mean for you? Considering the birth of Jesus this way, the certainty, the unexpectedness of it, what does that mean to you? I think I got two points here. The first thing that it should that you should take away from this is that you should allot in your life, you should plan for God working in ways that you don't expect. Okay? You should plan on God working in ways that you don't anticipate. Again, Mary, Joseph, wise men, shepherds, they all knew that God had promised a Savior, but then it actually happened, and they were a part of the story. Consider the shepherds. They're just doing their job, right? They got the sheep. They don't want the sheep to run away. They're just, they don't even, I don't even know if they have dogs at that point. It's probably just them chasing around a bunch of sheep, like in the middle of the night, and then boom, the heavenly chorus, angels sing, singing, A Savior is born, minding their own business. And now they're roped in, pulled in to the great story of God and his salvation for the world. God has amazing and incredible things in store for you. Amazing and incredible things in store for his children. And they are plans that are bigger than us. Just like Mary, Joseph, the shepherds, and the wise men, he's calling you to be a part of his bigger story. And he wants to use you in ways that you least expect. And I think about my own life. Five years ago, or whenever I got married, like six or seven years ago, to think if I could look forward, if I had planned out my life, 
Would I be here right now? Probably not. But thank God that, thank God that he doesn't make my life work out according to my plan. Because at the end of the day, it's not about my story. It's about my story wrapped up in his story. Okay? If you are Mary, her story, what it looked like at the time for Mary, it looked like she had cheated on Joseph with another man and got pregnant. That's what it looked like on the outside. But it wasn't her story. She was a part of God's bigger story. And that story was to use her so the Savior could come to the world. What is your story? And how does it fit into God's bigger story? Whenever we view our lives in that way, from that vantage point, we have to a lot, we have to understand that if we are just subjecting ourselves to the Lord, submitting to Him, throwing ourselves on Him, trusting in Him, He's going to do things that we don't expect. And I'm telling you, expect that. Expect that. And that brings us to our second point. He wants to use you in ways that you least expect, and that's okay because he has it all figured out. We don't serve a God who is making it up as he goes. We don't serve a God who hits the domino and hopes that the rest of the dominoes fall the way that they're supposed to fall, right? We don't serve a God who is crossing his fingers that things come out the way that he wants them to. The Christmas story tells us that what God has planned from the beginning will be accomplished in the fullness of time. Nothing happens outside of his control. So we might not know everything that God plans for us in his story, but we still rest in the certainty of the story. We still rest in the certainty of the promises, the certainty of the plan, and the certainty of his word. And that's what I want you to take away from the Christmas story today. Unexpected, yes, yet entirely certain. That leads us to our second line, the second point, very similar to the first point. But the second word is this, unlikely. The birth of Jesus was unexpected, yet entirely certain. The birth of Jesus also was very unlikely. And what Jesus went on to be was very unlikely. And yet, guaranteed by God. This is what the next line says in the psalm. Lowly and small, the weakest of all, unlikeliest hero, wrapped in his mother's shawl, just a child. Is this who we've waited for? There's a passage in 1 Corinthians that I came across this week as I was doing my kind of Devo time. And so this is a great text. 1 Corinthians 1, 27 to 29. And this is a text that is very strange because it makes you feel good and it makes you feel bad at the same time. This is what it says. God chose what is foolish, what is foolish in this world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being may boast in the presence of God. This passage humbles me because if I am chosen by God, it implies that I'm foolish, weak, lowly, and despised, right? 
God chose what is weak to shame the strong. But it encourages me because I know that I have nothing in myself to boast in, but only the power of God himself, and that he has chosen me. That he has chosen me. The point of this passage and the point of this entire sort of section of the message is that God intentionally chooses what is most unlikely in this world to accomplish his purposes so that only he can get the credit for it. God chooses what is weak so that whenever the weak prevail, only he can get the glory for it. And you can't get much weaker than a child born to a poor family in a small town in a manger amongst sheep and hay. With Jesus, we see the power structures of the world flipped upside down. One would never look for a king in a cradle. It is unlikely that you would find a king there. And yet sh shepherds were hastened along by the angels. Unto you is born this day in the city of David who is Christ, a Savior, who is Christ the Lord, however unlikely that may be. If you look at the rest of Jesus' life, you'll find this unlikely Savior thing is something that followed him around. He was born in circumstances that make it unlikely as king, but if you keep looking at his life as he grows up, it's even more unlikely that this guy is king. People just didn't believe it. They didn't believe it. Jesus can't be Savior. Just look at where he's from. We read this whenever Jesus calls his first disciples in John chapter 1, verses 45 and 46. This is what it says. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Philip is saying to Nathanael, We found the Messiah. Listen to what Nathanael says in response. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus was from Nazareth, a small town, and Nathaniel, or, yeah, Nathaniel has doubts. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? It's like being from Westbrook, right? Sorry for those who live in Westbrook. <laughs> Can anything good come out of Westbrook? You could say Gorham, Standish. I'll just, I'll throw all of your towns under the bus, Right? No way the Savior could come from that. Relatable here of your hometown dictating who you are and what you can be. Even Jesus got that. Even Jesus got that. And I think there's a reason that Jesus grew up in Nazareth and not Jerusalem and not any other <clears throat> major Jewish city. The scriptures tell us that Jesus can be our sacrifice can serve in our place and he knew us because he was like us he was from a small town he hungered he thirst philippians says that though he was in the form of god he did not count equality with god a thing to be grasped but he emptied himself by taking the form of servant being born in the likeness of men all the way down to being from a small town in the middle of the desert. Talk about attention to detail. He was tempted as we are, yet he did not sin. He endured all the trials and temptations of life, just as you do, and so much more. Have you ever been tempted by the devil in the wilderness after not eating for 40 days and 40 nights? And yet he always entrusted himself to his Father. God is making a statement to us. 
by having a son grow up in Nazareth. But if those outside of Nazareth thought it unlikely that Jesus would be the Savior, those in his hometown that actually knew him believed it even less, violently so. I'm going to read you this story from Luke chapter 4. It's, it's a longer story. I'm just going to hit the high points. But this is what it says. I don't know if you guys, you know, my, my situation, I didn't grow up here. I grew up down south. But whenever you kind of go back to your hometown, it just kind of feels weird because people know you, right? And you go off and maybe do some things, and you come back, and they're like, oh, that's, that's that old Aaron, you know, or whatever, who, you know, old John, old, old Sally. Her life, you know, they know you. Her life might not amount to anything. How could that, you know, we know that person. They're never going to amount to anything. Listen to what Jesus had to go through. Luke chapter 4, verse 16. And Jesus came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. He came to his hometown. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up and read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah came to him, and he enrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written. And he reads the prophecy there in Isaiah. And the prophecy in Isaiah talks about um, the blind seeing and those oppressed being set free and proclaiming liberty to people who are captive. And it's all a prophecy of what the Messiah is going to do. Okay? That's what, the, that's what Jesus reads there. Okay? And it says this. He rolled up the scroll, he gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he said to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So he is claiming, Messiah, uh, Isaiah is writing about me. That's what Jesus is saying, okay? And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? I went to, I graduated high school with that guy. This is what they're saying, okay? Continuing on. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. And he goes on to sort of call them out that they don't believe in him as the Messiah. And this is their response. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. I bet you've never gone to your hometown and the town turn on you and try to kill you. But that is exactly what happened to Jesus. That's where we get... The saying, a prophet has no honor in his hometown. Okay? He goes to his hometown. He's well received. This is Joseph's son. Listen to things he says. He does such a good job speaking in the synagogue. But then whenever Jesus says that he's not merely Joseph's son, but the son of God, everything changes. They become enraged. They try to throw him off a cliff. And he escapes. It was so unlikely that Jesus was the Messiah, that even his own family didn't believe in him. His brothers, it says in John 7, verse 5, did not believe. Even Mary had some doubts. We read that in Mark, which is strange. Very strange. No way this guy is the Savior. He was too lowly. He was from Nazareth. He was the son of a carpenter. In Isaiah, it says that he had no form or majesty that we should look at him. No beauty that we should desire him. 
And yet, he truly was the Son of God and the Savior of the world. All of this teaches us something very important about how God chooses to work in this world. And it's the point we've already made in 1 Corinthians. God is not looking for the smartest. He's not looking for the most talented, the richest, the best connected, the most successful. He's not looking for the most likely to succeed. As if the vote of your peers in senior year of high school really matters all that much. His plans for this world aren't dependent on having the most talented people on roster at the church. And the metrics of success aren't dictated by worldly aptitudes. No, he uses the foolishness. What is foolish in this world, he uses. What is weak by the world's definition of weakness, that's what he uses. What is low according to worldly standards, that's what he wants. And what the world despises, he uses to accomplish his plan of salvation for the world. That's who God is looking for. This is what set the early church apart. Whenever Peter and John were before the religious elite preaching the gospel, this was their response to seeing them. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. You may consider yourself unlikely to do anything of great importance. You may think, how could God use someone like me? I don't have this. I don't have that. I don't have anything to bring. Maybe because of where you're from, maybe because of your upbringing, maybe because of who your mother is, who your father is, maybe because of life experiences, maybe because of mistakes in the past, you think, I can't be of any use. We could come up with a million and one reasons why God can't use us, million and one reasons why God won't work or won't move in this area of my life. And trust me, as a church planner, I have come up with them all. But you must understand, the unlikeliness is the whole point. It is unlikely. In fact, it's impossible for you to do anything without depending on the Lord. It says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. The power belongs to God and not to us. And he wants to use people who are unlikely so that he can get the credit for it. So what is God asking of you? He wants you to be faithful. He's looking for you to take him at his word. He's looking for you to believe in him. He's looking for you to trust him, to be obedient to him, to give up what he's called you to give up, to repent of what he's calling you to repent of, to hold on to what he's called you to hold on to, to seek his face, to be in his word, and to be sent out into his world, to boast in your weaknesses, in your foolishness, foolishness, in your lowliness, and to see him move in your midst. That's what he wants. And the birth of Jesus preaches all of this to us. It was unlikely, it was unexpected, and it was everything that God had intended. The chorus of our song, as we close, dwells on these words. How many kings step down from their thrones? How many lords have abandoned their homes? How many greats have become the least for me? Only one did that for me. This passage, the chorus, reminds me of the passage in Romans chapter 5, verses 6 to 8. It reads this. 
For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one will even dare to die. So who in their right mind would ever do this? That's the question the song is asking. And that's the question that Paul is asking. And it ends with this. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. At the end of it all, what is most unlikely, what is most unexpected, is that God would choose to sacrifice his own son for the sake of sinful man. I did not expect that. That Jesus would give up the glories of heaven for the sufferings of this world, and that he do it for me, and that he do it for you, unlikely, unexpected, yet entirely certain. That's exactly what he did. This Christmas season, I want you to glory in the unexpected. I want you to glory in the unlikely. And I want you to understand that your story and what God is going to do with you in his bigger story is also unexpected and on the outside seems unlikely, yet at the end of the day is entirely certain. Just as Jesus died and rose and God shows his love for us, that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. That is a certainty that we celebrate every year, now at Christmas, toward the end of the time. Let's be certain of that together. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the enormity of your word. It's so much bigger than us. It, it calls us to believe things that are just too incredible to believe. That you would accomplish salvation this way. That you would take Mary and Joseph and Jesus and Bethlehem in the most unlikeliest of ways. And that was your plan. And it still is your plan. That you are still calling people in unlikely and unexpected ways to accomplish things that are far greater than they could ever do. To show that you are God. And that you reign supreme. And that you have a mission in this world to save the world. To bring them home. Lord, I just want to pray that the enormity of this would be comprehensible to us, that it would come and impact our hearts in a way that changes our outlook on this Christmas season, that we wouldn't lose the depth of meaning here and lose the, the, true, the trueness, the truthfulness of this, and that it would impact not only how we spend this time with our families and our church, but also how we leave this time into the new year and be on mission for you. Lord, you sent your son, born of a, of a woman, born under the law, sacrificed for us, resurrected from the dead, unlikeliest circumstances, and you have also sent us, now that we have been saved by him, to be faithful, to believe, to trust, and to see you work in the same way. We love you, Lord. We thank you. We pray that you would build us up pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. You've been listening to the Sunday morning sermon taught by Pastor Aaron Manning at Fort Hill Community Church in Gorham, Maine. For more information about Pastor Aaron or Fort Hill Community Church, visit us on Facebook or check out our website at www.forthillchurch.com.